Good morning. Hey, 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 if you're joining us for the first time, we really appreciate you taking that step. I know sometimes it's hard to step into a new thing. And if you're joining us online, thank you too for being with us. So I don't know about you, but when I was in high school, middle school, high school, you fight, you throw a punch, three days, out of school suspension, no questions asked. Well, no, 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 no. Yeah, they were sending a message. I'm talking the school administrators. They were sending a message. No fighting. Yeah, but, but no, no, no fighting. They were going to put an end to violence real intentionally. You know, if that's true of a school administration, how much more with God? The Prince of Peace, the one who created every person in his image. How much more would he take issue with violence? I want us to think about that today. If you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to 2 Samuel chapter 20, we're going to go through, we're going to wrestle with this question. What's the problem with choosing violence? We all get there. What's the problem with choosing violence? We'll think about that as we go through 2 Samuel 20. If you haven't been with us in the last months, we've been in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Israel transitions from a loose federation of states to a monarchy. In the process, what they're really looking for is security, and they think they can find security in the king. God says, no, security's in me. They keep pushing, pushing, pushing. So you know security's in me. I'm going to give you your king. And the first one's name is Saul, and he does horrible. He fails. The country struggles under his leadership because he won't submit to God. God raises up a second king. His name's David. There's a kind of a protracted period before David becomes king. Uh, he grows a lot in that, but finally Saul dies in battle. Uh, David takes over, and Israel flourishes under his leadership. A man after God's own heart. David does a lot of things well, but along the way, he ignores one directive from God, the king should not multiply wives. Deuteronomy 17, 17, that was given long before Israel entered the promised land. And David just keeps adding wives. When you're king, you can do that. You and you and you. And, and he's getting away with it until he sees a beautiful woman named Bathsheba bathing. I want her. He sends for her. Hey, 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 do you know she's married? Well, that, that's okay. He's been taking wives. And she turns up pregnant. And the problem with is her husband's away at war. So it's kind of a tough situation for David. So he calls Uriah, the husband, back. He won't sleep with his wife because he's too committed to his soldiers. David has him murdered. David steps into violence. He thinks he's pulled it off, but God sees, and he sends the prophet Nathan to confront him, and Nathan lets him know that God has forgiven him, but that um, he would suffer the consequences of his sin. It would be the child would die. Uh, the sword would never depart from his family. And as we've seen these last few weeks, David's family has endured within rape and murder. Uh, that son who did the murdering, Absalom, ended up rising up and leading a coup, which was just put down. But that means Absalom has died. But, you know, that, that step into violence by David wasn't an, an, a unique event. Back before he was king, he decided he couldn't trust God, so he went to live with Achish, the Philistine king. In order to prove his worth, he would make raids on, on uh, people who were in the land. And he would bring the spoil back and he'd say to Achish, I, I've, I've raided Jewish territories. Well, that was a lie. But he was trying to win favor. God never commented on that. They were supposed to dispossess the people. But David was using people and killing people to advance his own cause. So, so David has stepped into the cycle of violence. Later, when he became king, David wanted to build the temple for God, wanted to place a house, build a house to house God's ark. And 
God said, no, no, your son Solomon will do that. But David, I'm going to build you a house, an eternal legacy, which he has and is still doing. But later on in the book of Chronicles, we find out one of the reasons why God chose not to have David build the temple. Here it is, 1 Chronicles 28, verse 2. It says, Then King David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my brethren and my people. I intended to build a permanent home, that is, for the Ark of the Covenant, that is, the, the temple, for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. So I made preparations to build it. But God said to me, David, you shall not build a house for me, for I am because you are a man of war and have shed blood. David, though you have a heart, your heart is given to mine. A man, you're a man after my own heart. You can't represent me because you've shed blood, and, and that's not who I am. I, Jesus, one of the titles he was given was the Prince of Peace. Well, I can't have then somebody who's a man of bloodshed, a man of war, building my temple. So we see God has issues already with violence. With that backdrop, then let's pick up what's going on. The rebellion's been put down, but David immediately has another problem. Chapter 20, verse 1, Now a worthless fellow happened to be there, whose name was Sheba, the son of Bitri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, nor, have he, we, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tent, O Israel. So he's using poetry to say, We have nothing to do with David. Every man to his tent, worse. We're stepping out from under his rule. We're seceding from Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from following David and followed Sheba, the son of Bitri. But the men of Judah remained steadfast to the king from even the Jordan, even to Jerusalem. So those in the south say, we're going to stay with David. Those in the north say, we're done. We're doing our own thing. We're starting our own country. They're seceding. We'll get back to that in just a minute. But in verse 3, David comes back into Jerusalem. He's got a little problem he's got to deal with. It says, Then David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, the concubines whom he had left to keep the house, and placed them under guard and provided them with sustenance, but he did not go into them. They were shut up until the day of their death, living as widows. So what happens? A concubine is a woman who serves as a wife, but she doesn't have the legal protection of marriage. When David got run out by Absalom, Jerusalem, he's left these ten women. You take care of the house. When Absalom came in, in order to show that he was the king, he was advised, you go up and you pitch a tent on the roof. And you take these ten women in, and you let people figure out what's going on there. He forced himself on these women so as to take the kingdom. Now David's back. And he will no longer have relations with them. He will provide for them, and they will live as widows until they die. Andy, what's that? What's that? Let me tell you what it is. When people rebel against God, innocent people suffer. There is collateral damage to sin. Make no mistake about it, these women were Haunts. And through no fault at all, they'll be. And here's where it all started. David, Deuteronomy 17, 17, let not the king multiply wives for himself. He just kept doing it. He just, it, it fed. He just, I don't know what it fed. It fed his ego or something. And among others, these 10 women suffered. 
What's the lesson? When you and I decide we'll go our own way, we'll do our own thing, innocent people suffer. People close to us suffer. Now, God is not dispassionate. Here's what Psalm 34 says. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. God will come around these people, but there's consequence. There's all kind of consequence to sin. And we're seeing that here. Verse 4 and 5. Then the king said to Amasa. Now remember, Amasa led the rebellion, rebellious forces, but he's from Judah. So when the, the rebellion was put down, David made Amasa the general over his armies. He removed Joab. It was a political move, trying to appease the people from the north with someone who grew up in the south. The king said to Amasa, call out the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. So Amasa went out to call the men of Judah, but delayed longer than the set time which he had appointed him. I don't know why, but Amasa couldn't rally the troops within three days. So David's got to move on, and that's what he does in verse 6. Now David said to Abishai, now remember, Joab was the general. Before Amasa, he had a brother Abishai, closely linked. So David's going to Abishai. He says, now Sheba, the son of Bitri, will do us more harm than Absalom, Take your Lord's servants and pursue him so that he does not find for himself fortified cities and escape from our sight. Okay, Amasa couldn't pull this off in three days. Abishai, I need you to do it. And this guy, Sheba, he's worse than Absalom tried to pull a coup. At least in the coup, you're going to keep the nation together. Sheba wants to separate us. You need to go, and you need to go after him now before he gets in some kind of fortified city because then we got a problem. So Abishai's in charge. Verse 7 said, so Joab's men out. Whoa, 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 whoa. thought Abishai was in charge. Well, maybe. But the soldiers recognized Joab's leadership. So it says, so Joab's men went out after him, along with the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men, and they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bitri. Verse 8, when they were at the large stone, which is Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was dressed in his military attire, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened at his waist. And as he went out forward, it fell out. Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him, but Amasa was not on guard against the sword which was in Joab's hand, so he struck him in the belly with it and poured out his inward parts on the ground. He did not strike him again, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bitri. Joab thinks it's necessary to get rid of this deposed general. So he pulls up next to him, kisses him, and it's murder. In case you're missing it, that's murder. That's the second time Joab's murdered somebody. Back in 1 Samuel, he murdered Abner the same way. And what does David do? Nothing. Because he's lost all kind of moral credibility. Remember, he murdered an innocent man. Remember, he made raids on villages to enhance his reputation with Achish, the Philistine king. David stepped into violence, and now he's caught up in it. He's part of the violence cycle, and there's no getting out. See, we ask this question, what's the problem with choosing violence? Here's the deal. Violence produces more violence. Violence begets violence. 
You step into it, I step into it, it's hard to get out of it. Remember when Jesus was arrested? Peter pulled his sword out, he was gonna fight for the Lord and just took off somebody's ear. Jesus heals the guy's ear and then what does he say to Peter? Put away your sword. Why? He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. You can walk the way of violence. You will reap what you sow. So that's where we are. We've got a dead Amasa. So what happens? Verse 11. Now there stood by him one of Joab's young men and said, whoever favors Joab and who is for David, let him follow Joab. So that's what this was about, getting the army all aligned with one guy, get him aligned with Joab. Well, there's no other commander, so that would be Joab in the lead. But Amasa, remember him, just stabbed to death, lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the men saw that all the people stood still, he removed Amasa from the highway into the field and threw a garment over him when he saw that everyone who came by him stood still. So, so the problem is we want to march the army forward and there's a dead guy laying there. Our troops aren't going forward. So what do we do? Hey, a couple private and private, I need you to come. And what do they do? They take the guy and they pitch him. Can you put your garment over him? And on we go. We're not even going to give him a decent burial because don't you know, we got, a, we got a mission. That's how a violent world works. Get out of the way and let's go forward. Verse 13, as soon as he was removed from the highway, all, all the men passed on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bitri. Now he went through all, talking about Sheba here, now he went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, even Bethmach and all the Barites, and they were gathered together and also went after him. So he's gathering this large force. They came and besieged him in Abel Bethmach. Now, so this is Joab. Sheba's gone into the city, and they cast up a siege ramp against the city, and, and it, stood by the, it stood by the rampart. And all the people with Joab were wreaking destruction in order to topple the wall. So, so Sheba goes into this city, Abel at birthmark, and, and this is where they're going to hold up. And Joab brings his forces out, and they're trying to take the wall down. Now imagine you're a citizen there. You didn't ask for this, but they just showed up. Remember I talk about innocent people dying? We're set up for that. But, verse 16, then a wise woman called from the city, hear, hear, please tell, tell Joab, come here that I may speak with you. So he approached her, and the woman said, are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then he said to him, listen to the words of your maidservant. He said, I'm listening. Then she spoke saying, formerly I used to say, they will surely ask advice at Abel, and thus they ended the dispute. This is a place that ends disputes. We don't perpetuate them. I'm one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You are seeking to destroy a city, even a mother in Israel. A lot of people are going to die. Like I'm a mother. I'm going to die in this. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? Joab replied, far be it. Far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. Such is not the case. But a man from the hill country of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bitri, my name, has lifted up his hand against King David. Only hand him over, and I will depart from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. How, do you, how are you feeling if you're Sheba? Not good. You're a pawn in this action. Remember, David's got, got nothing in this. David's not even in the equation. Then the woman wisely came to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bitri, and threw it to Joab. So he dispersed from the city, each to his tent. Joab also returned to the king at Jerusalem. Verses 23 to 26, I'll let you read in your own some details administratively about who was running the country. 
David was defined as the man after God's own heart. Israel's greatest king. But I want to tell you, he was a flawed king. That's what we've talked about through all this. He was a flawed king. Flawed in so many ways. He compromised the conviction about adding wives. And he stepped into the cycle of violence. You could argue that David, in some ways, abused power. And he's Israel's greatest king. And ask the question, do we have any other options? Yeah, we do (laughs) for a king. His name is Jesus. In contrast to David, Jesus had all power. And he laid it all down. Remember when they came to arrest Jesus? Jesus said, who are you looking for? Looking for Jesus of Nazareth. This is in John 19. He says, I am. And with the words, I am, flat laid everybody out. He could have walked. But he laid it all down. All power, he laid it down for you and for me. That's the king we serve. See, we live in a world that almost seems to glorify violence. Jesus says, that's not me. Remember, David wanted to build a temple. I can't have you doing that because you're a person of violence. That doesn't represent me. It's no surprise, and the person who wrote Proverbs says this in Proverbs 3. Do not envy a man of violence. Do not choose any of his ways. And as followers of Jesus, we're called to a very different standard. We're called to live radically different. Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus said. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. This thing is weighted with implications. But at the very least, it means we give up the right to equal retribution. You do me, I'm going to do it. No, 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 no. If we follow Jesus, we give that up. At the very least, if at all possible we have the option to de-escalate, that's what we're going to do. Instead of stepping forward, if we have the option to step back, we do that. Well, I mean, they, Andy, you don't know. No, no, no. No, no, we follow a Savior who did not choose violence. And in fact, he gave himself up for you and for me. That's our model. That's who we follow. We're following the prince of peace. So that certainly affects our actions, but I I think we need to step back from that. I think we need to think about what what are we focusing on? What are we taking in? And I suggest to you that we, in the TV watch, the movies we watch, the video games we play, we desensitize ourselves to violence. We let it become something that's just normal. And it's kind of no big deal. So, before there was John Wick or before the Terminator, there was Detective Harry Callahan for the San Francisco Police Department, played by who? Clint Eastwood. And I remember as a high school student, I was a freshman or sophomore, we went to a double feature, Dirty Harry and Magnum Force. And it was so cool. And there were a series of those movies. And I can't remember, but there was one scene. It's the beginning of the movie. And Detective Callahan sees that a bank's going to be hit. And he goes and he breaks the thing up. And there's all kind of shooting. And there's a guy laying on the ground. And Callahan, cool and collected, comes to him and says, you know, I can't remember on all that. If I shot five or six shots. There's only six shots in a thing. You feeling lucky? You feeling lucky? 
because there's a gun right there. You feel like, yeah, go for it. Well, and the kid goes for it, and he's got one last time. Boom. And I remember we used to, man, that was so cool. Did you, we talk about that was so, what are we doing? We're being desensitized. We're glorifying violence. That's not our creator. That's not our MO as followers of Jesus. Remember, violent people don't represent God. A violent person lost the right to build the temple because God said, you're not my man. We need to think through. What are we letting into our mind that desensitizes us to what's going on? And then I'd suggest we need to consider our rhetoric. We need to consider our language. How about this? Politician X destroys politician Y on topic Z. I mean, crushes them, obliterates them. And with our words, we start the cycle. We buy into violence. So I see you and we disagree on something, it's okay to say we disagree. But when we move to I hate you, I want to destroy you, cross the line. I disagree with your idea because I think this and this is more, okay, okay. But when it moves personal, I hate, I, we're stepping into Violence. We're stepping out from the example of the Prince of Peace. We're getting in this silence, this, this cycle, where violence begets violence. It starts with our rhetoric. It starts with our words. Alfred Noble. You might recognize that name. You know where Alfred Noble made his money? He developed dynamite. And then he hoped in developing dynamite, he put an end to war because people would see how horrific it could be. But it did just the opposite. It made him a rich man because everybody wanted dynamite to enhance their war machine. So, Alfred Noble went along, a rich man, and then his older brother died. And the newspaper got it wrong. They thought Albert Noble died. And they wrote his obituary. And this one line got to Alfred Noble. It says, Alfred Noble devised a way for more people to be killed in war than ever before. He devised a way for more people to be killed in war than ever before. And Alfred Noble thought, do I want that to be my legacy? So he took his money as a down payment for the Nobel, what? Yeah, Peace Prize. To give to the scientist and writer who most moved forward the causes of peace. He was later asked about that and he said, Everybody ought to be given a chance to rewrite their obit. Okay? Jesus has given us a chance to rewrite 
our abet. We're not going to walk the way of violence. Because that's not the way of our Savior. When at all possible, we're going to be de-escalators. We're going to give up the right to equal retribution. We're going to choose language that is not incendiary. We're going to choose to not watch things that desensitize us to violence. Because we follow the Prince of Peace. And we understand once we step into violence, violence only produces more violence. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're grateful that we get to look in on the mistakes of David, the man after your own heart. He made some choices, and he got caught up. And it cost him. It cost people around him. Lord, we don't want to, as great as David was, we don't want to go that way. We want to go the way of another king. His name was Jesus. He was the Prince of Peace, and he had all power, and he chose to lay it down. That's not our culture. That's not who we are, but we're not called to be of this culture. We're called to be of another world, of another value system. Lord, that we would buy in to you and your values and your priorities. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.